0: Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. The premise of this podcast series is that taking the lead in cutting edge technologies is vital to US economic and military interests. One way to do that is to protect our own intellectual property. Another is to limit our adversaries access to key technologies. In our last episode, we talked to the Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security, Alan Estevez, about how the U.S. government is using sanctions and export controls to block the People's Republic of China and Russia from accessing certain critical items. We also have talked recently to Amy Ziegart, who believes the government must make better use of so-called open source intelligence, that is, information that is publicly available. Today, we're going to twine those two threads together, export controls and open source intelligence, and get perspectives from the private and nonprofit sectors. Joining me is Varun Vera, Chief Operating Officer of C4ADS, and Greg Levesque, Chief Executive Officer of Strider Technologies. Welcome to you both. It's great to be with you, Gene. Thank you, Gene. First, I'd like each of you to give me the 30-second description of your organizations and what they do. Varun, why don't you go first? What is C4ADS and what does it do?
1: So C4ADS is a nonprofit that was born in the digital age. We use open data and cutting-edge emerging technologies to map, track, and ultimately provide the information that can help disrupt transnational illicit networks that we think are at the forefront of our national security that threatens open and pluralistic
2: societies.
0: Greg, tell us about Strider Technologies.
2: Yeah, so Strider is a venture-backed technology company. Um, At our core, we're a data business, and we've built a variety of technical capabilities to collect, process, and deliver open source data, uh, predominantly to corporate customers, but also increasingly government agencies around the world to better protect uh, their intellectual property, i.e. their talent their technology and R&D programs, and uh, their supply chains.
0: Varun, Alan Estevez laid out for us how he believes export controls on semiconductors and other technologies will eventually strangle Russia's war-making capability. But C4ADS did a recent report spelling out how Russia is still getting all kinds of war material that are under sanctions. How did you find it was circumventing the U.S. export control regime?
1: Absolutely. So first, I would say that I think Alan is absolutely correct in that Russia depends on a huge amount of foreign materials to supply its defense industrial base. Everything from tanks to fighter planes to ballistic missiles require the import of foreign precursor and finished material to be able to create those products and field them for combat. However, what we're seeing is enforcement hasn't quite kept up with this need. There's an inability at present to track the flows that are leading into Russia from other countries, including China. And this is one of the recent reports that we did, where we found over the last year at least 84,000 distinct shipments from Chinese companies to Russian companies in the defense industrial base. So certainly while I agree that cutting off these foreign precursor parts can have very significant impacts on Russia's warfighting capability, At present, the international community is not doing enough to track and disrupt these flows.
0: And these materials, are they currently being used in the war in Ukraine? Oh, absolutely.
1: And let me give you an example. Um, A lot of Russia's precision ballistic missiles require things like machine tools, precision machine tools to produce. Nearly all of these machine tools come from outside Russia. Russia does not have the capability at present to produce these domestically. And a lot of these come from uh, Western European countries. And just a few companies may represent a very significant amount of the total machine tool uh, imports that Russia is currently conducting. So just very relatively small targeted effort could have very significant ability in this case on Russia's ability to create the ballistic missiles that is raining down on Kyiv.
0: And you drew your conclusions from data that's publicly available, correct?
1: Publicly and commercially available. So in many cases, we're relying on data sets that are just out there, in the open, are easily accessible, openly available. In other cases, we're relying on commercial data, which is slightly more difficult to access, uh, but provides significant insight to map these networks.
0: But you were able to get access. How did you do that?
1: Yeah. Um, There's a tremendous amount of data out there these days. I think that's the bottom line. I think the world has really changed in just the last 10, 15 years on not just the amount of data that's being created, but the amount of data that's being publicly hosted in some way or the other. Any modern economy at this point uh, requires a lot of these data sets. You need to have a relatively open corporate registry so that foreign counterparties can actually assess mergers and acquisition risk, for example. You need open trade data, for example, to to allow shipping companies and trade counterparties to have some confidence in the integrity of the trade they're doing with you, and so on and so forth. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of data that's available. It's growing every day. And it's fundamentally important to the international economy and to global supply chains for this data to be available.
0: So the report we're talking about is about um, uh, Russia, but the U.S. has also uh, imposed export controls against China. Are those any more effective or less effective? Do you know?
1: I don't know if I I can specifically say if they're more or less effective. I would certainly say the scope and the scale of Chinese trade is significantly larger than that of Russia. Um, And therefore, the international linkages are significantly larger. So the Chinese challenge is just larger in both scope and volume than the the Russian challenge. Uh, But both of them are being able at present to circumvent both sanctions and export controls, at least to some degree.
0: Greg, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah,
2: I just wanted to uh, further add on to the comment Varun was making about open source data. You know, we're living in, in, I think, a golden era of open source. It's, it's, it's been ramping aggressively uh, over the last decade, but especially during COVID, we saw a massive accelerant uh, of data and information being pushed online during that period of time around the world. It wasn't just here in the US or the West, it was in China and Russia. And I think that's an important uh, a point to make, right, is that now the question becomes what to do with that data. So th- we, we live in a world that is uh, awash with it. The problem really we see is how do you then uh, process it in a way that's meaningful? And in cases like China, right, they've actually literally come out with uh, a policy stating that uh, data is a new key factor of production, right? Um, much like land or uh, or uh, natural resources. So, I mean, our view, and I'm, I'm sure Varun shares this perspective as well, data has become a digital uh, resource, right? And we need to we need to begin to view it that way.
0: Greg Strider uses that data to try and identify what and who might be targeted uh, by the Chinese or possibly others. Talk to us about the kind of open source intelligence that you are using, as opposed to what Varun might be looking at, or is it the same?
2: You know, I I can't speak to the similarities, but I think there's uh, certainly thematic overlap. And, you know, when you actually break down the types of data that's publicly available, it spans the gamut, everything from social media to uh, work information, employment records to, as uh, Varun brought up, you know, investment or even corporate uh, information as well. So all of those can be collected in different buckets. What's unique is when you begin to merge them together, especially across different languages to then create a more contextualized picture of what's going on. Um, not just on a personal level, but even at an organizational level, industry, or or country.
0: So what tools are you using to do that?
2: So uh, at Strider, we've uh, built in-house a variety of tools to collect that data. Um, a lot of this is now automated. So we've developed the capability to um, expand our collection and scale that rapidly without the need for human intervention. Uh, so we are applying different models to uh, help us identify net new sources that are that could be of interest. Things that took me when I was doing this manually, you know, literally months to put together. Uh, we've developed a capability to do that, you know, in seconds, hours, uh, and then putting those to uh, those data points uh, in a way that is consumable. You know, is uh, I think one of the key key pieces that we've that we've cracked.
0: Can you give me some specific examples of what you've been able to uncover at Strider?
2: So it spans the gamut. We, we've been able to uncover, um, for example, People's Liberation Army front companies that are accessing um, commercial markets to acquire material. Um, Varun and C four ADS have have you know helped to uncover some of those things in in reports as well. We're also uh, identifying uh, networks of individuals that are involved in what I would call spotting and targeting talent or emerging technologies that then. Uh, are are being uh, used to inform Chinese intelligence services. Uh, the shocking thing for me, Gene, even after working on this for over a decade, uh, is the scope and scale of the activity. Uh, I think we all uh, understand it at a macro level. We know China, Russia, even Iran are engaged in this competition, and industry is the front line of it. Uh, I think, though, what we don't quite understand uh, more broadly is the actual scope and scale of that activity and that it's happening in companies, it's happening in universities, and it's not just a government-to-government issue.
0: As I understand it, some of the work you're doing is preemptive. You're trying to identify what technologies might be a target or what researchers might be a target.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I think the first part of this competition is protect your crown jewels, right? Right. I mean, these are the underlying foundations of the American economy, of the Western uh, economy and in in the free world. We need to protect our abilities to uh, develop and then deploy these technologies. China, Russia, their focus point is on uh, leapfrogging us, in essence, and in their own terms, right, um, achieving the commanding heights in technology domains like quantum, AI, hypersonics, predominantly uh, technology fields that have dual-use capabilities, They drive economic growth and development, but can also be leveraged to support and build a modern military. And so, yeah, at at our core at Strider, the first step we view is you need to protect your people, you need to protect your R&D, you need to protect your supply chains. And then once that's complete, you can begin to really compete.
0: I'm particularly fascinated by the idea of trying to identify people And how data, open data, would help you do that? For instance, if you're looking at one of the national labs, how would you figure out who might be targeted? So let me
1: give you an example. I mean, this is not a methodology C4ADS developed. Uh, This is something others, Peter Singer in particular, uh, had modeled early in the day. But for example, if you were trying to understand who are the Chinese scientists that are involved in some of these commanding heights um, issues, say quantum. You know, one of the the ways you could find that signal, so to speak, that Greg is talking about is in academic uh, records or patent databases. You know, scientists need to publish to survive, right? It's part of that academic sort of industry. So a simple signal that was once found was look for those scientists that are focused in certain key areas, quantum, cryptography, et cetera, and see what they are now. Quite often, you'll see some of them have disappeared. They haven't published for the last five to 10 years that potentially adds a bit of a risk layer in where they might have gone. They're certainly no longer in the academic world. They may have been captured by the government or somewhere else to to apply into dual use or military side of the the technology. So there's different ways, if you understand the question that you're asking, where you can chain backwards to to think about where, where that answer is going to be in data and then focus your collection and processing, as Greg was saying, on those areas to look for that specific risk signal.
0: Is open source data often reliable?
1: Uh, not always. I think there's a. I think that's true of data writ large. Um, everything needs to be validated in some way. But I think one of the power uh, or some of the power of open data is because of the scale of what's available, when you start integrating different pieces of data together, they can often start to reinforce each other, right? You can have a higher degree of confidence in the same piece of information, a certain ID number, a certain phone number is repeated in multiple different independent databases that are formed differently. So there are ways uh, where you can use open data to start validating other forms of open data and adding to the the level of credibility that you have with it. But certainly I think investigators, analysts, others need to be very careful about what they're looking at and just thinking about the biases and the data gaps that may be present before jumping to conclusions.
0: Greg, is the U.S. government leveraging all of this information the way it could and the way it should?
2: You know, I don't. I don't know that any government is, to be frank. Uh, There's certainly, I I think, an awareness uh, and an understanding now that that is a capability gap, uh, particularly within the intelligence community, that open source data uh, is in many respects, unique to what's being collected uh, in more clandestine or advanced means. And, uh, and also might be actually the lead generation for some of the more uh, advanced capabilities that exist within the intelligence community, rather than viewing those as the kind of first tool to pull out of the toolbox. So, you know, uh, in terms of leveraging it, I think we are behind um, in general, but that's, that's not unique to the United States. Uh, but there are efforts underway to ramp that up and to begin to look at open source as a more rich environment for uh, data and information collection that can drive the mission sets of the U.S. government.
0: Are any governments doing it well?
2: Uh, the Chinese government's doing it uh, extraordinarily well, yes.
1: I was just about to yeah. say exactly that. I think yeah. some of the most proficient users and you know an organization that truly understands the value of PAI – is probably the Chinese intelligence services. Yeah. So we really got to think about it from that perspective.
2: And, and look, I'll, I'll bring it to life and give you an example. We, we've collected uh, databases in China of Chinese government agencies using open source to map scientific talent around the world. And then they will apply analytics on top of it to uh, generate scores of individuals. Uh, and one of the more shocking uh, data points is in some cases we've even seen databases that include uh, with those individual profiles an estimated cost to recruiting that person. So, uh, and I think that's something that's important for folks to understand that that data set or database that the that this government agency in China put together was not just within academia. They were looking at talent around the world, uh, whether they were in a company, uh, in a nonprofit organization, or in academia, and they, that is what they then will use to fill domestic gaps within their own industries or technology fields.
0: When Amy Ziegart was on the podcast, she said the U.S. should have a dedicated open source intelligence agency. Do either of you or both of you have an opinion on that? So I don't know if I have
1: an opinion whether it should be an organization or otherwise, but I would kind of come back to something Greg mentioned earlier about the the size and scale of this opportunity, right? At one point or right now, the the intelligence community, for example, segments the world of technology and data into these segments, right? Like human, signals intelligence, et cetera. From our perspective, every single one of these disciplines or domains are are being recreated or are proliferating in publicly available information, right? What was traditionally signals intelligence, now there's available location data, or you know, AAS signal for ships or ADSB signal for planes that's openly available, unencrypted available to all to use. So I don't know if it's so much an organization, but I certainly think a culture shift is required to understand that there is a vast amount of capability and opportunity in each of those disciplines outside sort of the fortified uh, walls of classified information. And I certainly think, you know, all enterprises across the U.S. government and our partner countries should be postured uh, to taking advantage of that opportunity, whether that's a Organization or just a culture shift?
0: Do they have the technology or the talent to do that?
2: I think the answer is absolutely. They they certainly do have the technology. The talent exists. You know, uh, this is my own personal even within government. Yeah, Yeah. even within government, especially within government. Um, You know, look, America has talent across the board in government and industry. To me, uh, I think we don't have a data problem within the intelligence community, even on open source. The problem isn't data collection. The problem is how do you process it and what do you wanna get out of it, right? And so you know, I, I like to use this uh, oil analogy, Gene, right? If data is the new oil, then uh, what, is, what is the output that you want from that? How do you refine it and get these derivative products out of it that can help drive some of the mission sets that the US government is um, currently working towards? And so you know, we have that capability to collect the data. It's uh, in many respects in different languages, uh, different structures. So the question then becomes, how do you get that into a format uh, that can help drive the uh, mission sets of, of different teams?
1: Yeah, no, I would 100% agree. Um, I think there's two choke points of bottlenecks. And I would say one is processing, which is what Greg is talking about here. And the other is procurement, right? Um, I think that's one of the, the fundamental disadvantages that we see sometimes is just the speed of some of the the speed and complexity that's required to get on top of some of these. It would take me a day, for example, to sit with someone like Greg and onboard his capability if that's what we wanted to do. Whereas it may take the government months, even years sometimes to get around a fiscal cycle to be able to do that. And all of this this stuff is moving sometimes faster than those those acquisition cycles. So I think processing and uh, procurement are two of the biggest challenges. It's certainly not talent. Some of my most talented analysts you know, where they want to go eventually is to make mission impact in the government. So they're yeah. certainly drawing in the best. They have the money and the resources to do it. It's how
2: you put it into place.
0: Given those choke points, does government have to better leverage what organizations like your own are doing?
2: Look, uh, industry taken off. So we're off to the races. It's already happening. Um, our corporate customers, which span the Fortune 500 here in the U.S. and around the world, they're already leveraging this to drive their security programs uh, and and their uh, strategy operations. So my my view on it is: look, industries are already going to continue to to ramp up here. Uh, the government is what needs to catch up.
1: One hundred percent agree. Yeah. You know, sometimes I feel we can't keep up. We can't keep pace with the demand at this point. Yeah, we turned down something like eighty two percent of uh, opportunities that came our way last year just because we can't scale sometimes fast enough to keep up with the demand.
0: Does the private sector have access to all the government data that it would like to have in order to do its analyses? And on the other side, are there restrictions on the data that the government can collect and analyze?
1: No, I think is the, the short answer. And I don't I don't mean that in a negative way. I think it's it's a it's part of that culture shift we were talking about, right? I think you were talking about you know, the Department of Commerce, for example, the Department of Treasury. They do put out data. They do put out you know, the specially designated nationals list, for example. That's the, the, the gold standard for what you use in screening for sanctioned entities. Um, I don't think they are large enough at this point. You know, and an example I would give is we mapped out, uh, again, something Greg was mentioning earlier in the size and the, sco- the scale of some of these Chinese activities. When you look at just the joint ventures and subsidiaries, you know, one or two degrees out from say the 79 defense universities in China, you suddenly jump out to something like 16 to 20,000 related entities and individuals. The entire SDN list is a fraction of that. So, I don't think there's enough information coming out from the government and again, I think this is part of that culture shift on how should you engage industry? How should you create incentives? to move industry in the directions you want them to go. And I think the a better transmission of data can be a very important way to do that.
2: Greg? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, do we have data from the government uh, that's helped driving some of these things now? I mean, that's not necessarily a requirement either. Um, I think within open source, we can put together capabilities that are data-driven that rival what is being put together in government. So, in some regards, you know, I, I again I'll argue that industry is ahead of the curve here uh, in, in thinking about how to collect that information, package it, and deliver it in a way that is not only just um, consumable to customers, but uh, actionable, right? Something that they can then take and use to make a decision. That at at the essence of all of this is is what we're we're discussing. So my whole view uh, has been, it's not about collection. It's not just about getting as much data as you can. The next phase uh, for the government, for industry is what to do with it. And, and, you know, you asked that question earlier, what are some of the bottlenecks in government? I actually think that's one of the issues, that question, what should we do with this? Right? What is the uh, question we want to answer and then work it backwards? You know, instead, I think what we see a lot of times is, um, just blunt force trauma in collection capability, yeah. and then it just sits there. Right.
0: So there has to be better strategy.
2: There has to be a thought out process. What is it that we want to achieve and then build it backwards? I mean, that wasn't, that's how you start a business, right? That's exactly. how you start a 4 ads exactly. You have that mission piece to it first, and then you put the pieces together, um, in, i'm i'm certain and i know in some pockets of government that is the structure they they take but um you know you asked about an agency open source agency that's that's kind of the issue I would look at is what what is the what is the need that's being served by having an agency as the clearinghouse for this open source data right and what problems does it solve
1: and i would just something to add i mean i agree 100% with greg but i'd come back to something he was mentioning earlier which is industry is also the front line right we're talking about us as providers of some of this information there's a huge segment of industry that are also consumers of that information to take action you know the the finance industry communications industry the transport industry these are fundamentally the logistics that our adversaries require to carry out their their activities right they require information like what Strider's providing, what we are providing, to be able to take effective risk decisions. If we can amplify that community, we are essentially stretching out our front lines and our both our offensive and our defensive national power. So I think it's very much a strategic opportunity for the government to think about how to reposture to synchronize around and with industry, both on the generation of this information but also in the distribution of this information um, across our entire whole of society. Yeah, 100%. Agreed.
0: Given the value that this data has, are you seeing efforts by some of our adversaries and competitors to try and limit its availability?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, China has quite literally come out with a series of laws specific to the flow of data, right? Um, back to, I mean, almost like capital flows, Right. So uh, the PIPL law is a good example of that. that just came out last year. China is also uh, building massive data uh, centers around the country to store data domestically. And they're now beginning to um, require data providers in country to uh, have national security reviews before they can sell their data overseas. So, yeah, I mean, I think and, and they're the only country that's doing that right now, by the way.
0: Well, so, we're talking about it with TikTok, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is kind of the, the, a, a new inflection point, right? Data as a factor of production, data as a core asset of a nation state, and then how do you actually manage that and, and utilize it in a way that is meaningful? In the case of China, like a lot of things, their, their decision now is control the flow, control that, the access to that information, particularly to foreign audiences.
1: And I would just add to that, I think the China example is exactly right, but Russia is the same, same way. I think Russia is a little bit behind the curve. They're acting more reactively to the problems that they're already encountering. But you know, if you take two cuts of the same data sets in Russia, you'll start to see that all the um, government officials or the government entities are starting to disappear out of that data. So they're certainly starting to understand how organizations like Bellingcat and others have really used that data to great effect. And now they're trying to manipulate or clean it um, to prevent that from reoccurring, which is a little bit more reactive than the way that China is going about it, which Mm -hmm. is a very, very aggressive way of just scaring everyone in the market, to be quite frank. Um, You know, things like a Hong Kong corporate registry now requires a Chinese ID number to be able to access. And that's a very scary thing for, you know, a local national to do in service of international business, because you never know where where or when the hammer will drop.
0: And is the U.S. doing anything comparable to protect the data produced here?
2: No, and, I, and I'm not necessarily sure that they should uh, follow the same path. Yeah. You know, look, we, Amer- the beauty of America and the West and what we've built together is an open, collaborative environment. And uh, data is, is a you know exhaust of that collaboration in many respects. It's, it's a feature of the technological revolution that we've enabled over the last 20 plus years. Um, it's at the core of how we conduct due diligence, how we ensure that there's a trusted relationship between each other. Uh, so, you know, to me, I, I think what we should instead do is really look at ways to better leverage it and make it uh, accessible rather than control the flow of it or who has access to it and then use it as a, uh, as a chip in uh, a government power play.
0: Do you two perceive real urgency around these issues?
2: Oh, 100%. I think this is,
1: you know, as I mentioned, my organization is entirely postured around what we call like transnational illicit networks, not the state actors, but sort of the gray networks between them, because we think that is where, uh, that's where the security environment is evolving and changing towards. It's the same thing on the, co- the the flip side. It's the ability to combat these threats, the ability to take advantage of these opportunities is no longer restricted to government. It is a whole of society effort. So I 100% echo Greg that we shouldn't be following China and trying to control and tamp down on data. We should be, frankly, doing the opposite on making this more available, making this more accessible. And I think what we'll find is that community around us will be able to leverage it for for new types of effect we couldn't even think about.
2: Yeah, Yeah. it should be like, okay, if it is a factor of production, data is the new oil. It should be unleashed to, to drive economic and development and progress. So, and that that includes not just companies uh, but also academia as well. Um, and back to your sense of urgency question, Gene, I, I saw it really ramped, uh with during the Russia Ukraine war, and there were companies, I, I even on LinkedIn, uh, geospatial companies 100%. posting images that uh, ten years ago would have definitely been classified. Uh, about Russian troop movements, their testing of nuclear uh, missile sites, things like that, you know, with a smiley face emoji uh, next to it. I think that really helped to um, visualize for, for folks in government and around the world that what's going on with an industry from, a, from an intelligence and collection perspective is quite truly revolutionary.
0: Faroon Vera, Chief Operating Officer of C4ADS, and Greg Levett, Chief Executive Officer of Strider Technologies. Thanks a lot for joining me here today. This has been a great discussion.
2: This has been great. Thank you so much, Gene. Thank you, Gene.
0: And you've been listening to NATSEC Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. We'll be back in two weeks. I'm Gene Mazur. Take care.